Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the TBH Sports Podcast. We are back in a new state as uh, we've gotten ourselves moved in here to North Carolina, taking care of some business. We'll have some updates for you on Twitter for that, but same show as always. And uh, with that, I want to go ahead and welcome in my first guest. Alex Weiner is back to help us break down a wonderful World Series. Alex, thank you once again for coming on the show. I feel so welcomed, as everybody is welcomed when you welcome them in every game. That is that is how welcoming works. Um, <laughs> Alex, of course, is the uh, the Sports Illustrated writer for the Arizona Cardinals, but doing some baseball coverage today. Um, it was a, a few days ago that the Dodgers won the World Series, their first victory in a World Series since they beat the A's back in 1988. It just felt like a long time. And Alex, I think, you know, as good as it is for the Dodgers and for baseball that they got the victory in the World Series, it's kind of sad for the uh, the Dodgers always choke in October narrative, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's a shame, but it, this was so overdue. I mean, this was a team that probably, for like the 2010s, like they're over under as far as World Series, probably World Series wins should probably been like two. Um, and they just managed to come up short in sometimes humiliating fashion a lot. So, you know, it, it was overdue. We, we don't get to make fun of them anymore. And now now my Angels are no longer the only Southern California team with a World Series ring in the <laughs> 21st century, uh, which is a shame for me. That was, that was the most sad I was, but... Uh, no, this, this is this is this is overdue, and who knows? Maybe the 2020s will be ruled by the Dodgers. I don't see them going anywhere anytime soon. Yeah, not with the amount of money they're willing to spend. Uh, and also, it is kind of a shame for you. You mentioned uh, being an Angels fan, also a Clippers fan. So, man, that little brother narrative has just not been going well for you these last couple of weeks, has it? It's so tough, you know. <laughs> being uh, Lakers win like what? What was that? Two and a half weeks ago. Yep. I, I forget exact date something like that and then the Lakers and the Dodgers winning so yeah the little brothers I I've seen the memes of like you know the Squidward meme where he's mm-hmm. like house and watching Patrick and Spongebob running and smiling outside which is like the Lakers the the Lakers and Dodgers running outside and the, the Clippers Angels logo on Squidward's head and it's just yeah yeah you know it is what it is well, I think it's really funny, too, because I can't remember who it was. Somebody tweeted, uh, you know what you have to do at Rams, as if the Chargers didn't exist. And my first thought was immediately like, man, the only thing worse would be if Alex denounced his Ravens fandom and decided to support the Chargers. But uh, fortunately, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah, uh, that'd be yeah, no. <laughs> that would not be ideal. Um, so taking a look at the makeup of the World Series, it was a really good season for the Rays. They end up being the one seed. They come in. They pretty much just handle their business all the way throughout. They did face some opposition, but in the World Series, it just felt like despite the fact that this Rays team was so good, despite the fact that they had done so much to put the pieces together, the Dodgers were just the better team. Um, this is a Dodgers team that came out. They won game one in commanding fashion, 8-3. to The Rays steal game two, 6-4. to in Game 3, it was Dodgers 6-2 to two over the Rays. And then Game 4 is just one of the best games of baseball that I think I've watched in a very long time. I was watching that in a bar in Kansas City with a good friend of mine, Jordan Foote. Friend of the show, actually. And I think it was, what, all but the second inning where there was a run scored by, both, by one or both teams? Yeah, that's correct. I mean, that was absolutely insane. And uh, a lot of that game, I actually was listening to it on the radio. Um, and then I got, you know, I got in front of a TV in the seventh <laughs> inning and that ending, um, I, I don't know. It was just the perfect storm of just like, okay, if you walk a Rosarena here, you get to Brett Phillips and Brett Phillips who you know, former Royal I've talked mm-hmm. to, him this year, um, and he just hadn't really figured it out with the bat yet in the major league. So it's just like, oh, okay, this is kind of a, you know, a slam dunk 
so to speak, with Kenley Jansen going up against him and, you know, got his hands around, drilled it, and then, like, uh, I, I don't want to say like a blooper reel, but kind of a blooper reel of events happened. Yeah. Uh, the Rosarena falling down, Taylor booting the ball, ball getting past Will Smith. Um, I've never seen a game end like that. And, you know, it, the Dodgers won and all that kind of stuff, but if I'm going to remember anything from this year or this World Series, that one at bat is probably the thing I'm going to remember the most. Yeah, definitely. I read an article before the World Series started, and it was like, why Royals sh- why Royals fans should be rooting for uh, Brett Phillips and no one else this World Series. Um, of course, the only ex-Royal represented by either team. And yeah, just an incredible ending. I think my thought coming out of that game was if there's one thing that's going to give the Rays some momentum going into Game 5, it's this. But again, from Game 5 through Game 6, it really just felt like the Dodgers had a handle on it from start to finish. The Dodgers end up winning Game 5, 4-2, to two, and then, of course, they get the victory in Game 6, 3-1, to one, to take their first World Series victory, as I mentioned, since 1988. And there's another narrative that has kind of been busted a little bit here, and that is the playoff Kershaw narrative. I know... You know, I I think that there are some guys that when something like that happens, when they consistently choke in the postseason, it can be funny to a degree, but when it's a guy that's not only as nice as Clayton Kershaw, but as talented as Clayton Kershaw, I think it is kind of nice to finally see that come full circle, and I feel like it's got to feel great for him, too, to finally be able to put that ring on his finger. Yeah, I thought it got old last year when he allowed those back-to-back home runs against the Nationals in that photo of him in the dugout just looking like a defeated individual. Mm-hmm. Just That's when I was like, okay, he's, he, we got to get him something here because this is arguably the best pitcher of the 21st century. Probably, I don't even know how, how, how arguable this is. He's probably the 20, best pitcher of the 21st century, and time in and time out, he's been you know carrying the Dodgers in regular seasons and really doing you know all he can and then once he gets to the playoffs it just hasn't totally worked sometimes he gets left in too long looking at you Don Mattingly and then sometimes <laughs> you just have it and um not only for him to finally get that ring but for him to put up 11 and two-thirds uh with three earned runs and uh, 14 strikeouts it's brilliant I mean if you know he could have you know if they if they gave him the ball instead of Urias and let him do like a bum garner thing to close out the game who knows he might be the MVP Right. I mean, uh, he might be the MVP. He might also go back to reverting expectations. I think everyone would have everyone would have collectively been very concerned for him. uh, Had he prefaced that by saying leaving in Urias was the uh, absolutely correct move there. Yes. I'm just saying, like, you know, if he gets a couple more innings, then who knows? He might be the MVP. Fair enough. Fair enough. And let's take a look at his uh, his repertoire now that he adds a World Series title. He is an MVP, a three-time Cy Young Award winner, an eight-time All-Star. He's got the 2020 World Series championship to his name, a gold glove, the five-time ERA title. He was, you know, a player of the year at one point, and he's done it all pretty much with one team. You look at his career numbers as well, a 2.43 ERA. That's just not the kind of numbers you see out of a starting pitcher throughout the course of their career. That is absolutely insane considering he has pitched almost 2,400 innings in his career, and then, of course, a career war of 69.6. He is definitely going to go down as the pitcher of the generation. I think I completely agree with you. There are other guys that have had really good peaks, guys like Verlander, guys like Scherzer, um, but really no one that's been able to have this level of sustained success. And like I said before, as as a nice guy, it's just great to see him finally get that ring. Sorry, I don't want to interrupt, but like last year's ERA was up over three for the first time since 2008 when Jeez. he was a rookie. Um, and it was 303. And it was like, uh-oh, Kershaw's done. And it's like, <laughs> wait, it's, it's 303. 
and you know this year again it was 216 so yeah well we'll see how much longer we get but the peak is i mean he's not putting up like 1.70 ras but you know we'll see how much longer we get of like you know 2.2 era kershaw yeah i mean at a certain point you would expect that you know just with with what pitchers go through in an average year with their bodies and whatnot you would think that it wouldn't be sustainable for too much longer but you never know i mean guys like kershaw the great ones always seem to figure out a way to do it for longer than anybody else you mentioned that leaving Urias in the game was the perfect thing for the Dodgers to do. That was the right decision. I want to ask you about a decision that's getting a lot of heat right now. You know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. The Rays decide to pull Blake Snell in the sixth inning. Now, here's here's something that I do want to note. They've been doing things like this all year long. They've had their, their own method when it comes to pitching. But Blake Snell was pitching so well. And it wasn't even like he was showing signs of getting shaky. He gave up one hit. And they immediately pull him. And the second they did that, it just felt like the dynamic shifted and the Dodgers knew that they were in control with Blake out of the game. But let me ask you, what is your thought on them going ahead and pulling Snell after one hit there in the sixth inning? Um, I feel like I'm in the minority in saying I understand it. A lot of people were kind of like got their pitchforks out on, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, and, you know, pitchforks and torches and wanted to go over to you know Kevin Cash's house. But... You know, you, you mentioned this is basically, I mean, how they got there throughout the right, how they've managed the regular season, how they've managed the playoffs has been very consistent. And that is our starters can be dominant through the first two times of an order, but we don't really want them to go a third time through the order. We, want, we don't want, you know, some of the best hitters in the game like Betts and Seeger and Bellinger to see him a third time. Um, so I understand that. All right. And, but at the same time, I would have liked to at least see him face Mookie because he struck out Mookie twice and Mookie is a weird reverse splits guy where he's better against the right-handed hit pitchers than he is against lefties. So I would have liked to see him match up with Betts um, and like for, for an opportunity to maybe get a ground ball and at least try to get out of the sixth inning. Um, so I, I get the move. I thought it was one batter too early and then I thought that bringing in Nick Anderson who in the regular season was – one of the best, you know, three relievers in baseball. And then last year he might've been the best reliever in baseball. This is a guy that they trust a lot, but he didn't have it in the postseason. He just didn't. And going to him in that situation against Mookie Betts, the best hitter, you know, you know, the most talented hitter remaining in the series was a bit head scratching to me. I thought that there were better guys that they could have put out there for that. Right. I think there's one more thing that's not really getting talked about, and that is the tricky thing of, like you said, I completely agree. I don't think that you want Blake Snell to face a lot of those guys the third time through the lineup, but you do want him to stay in there to face Mookie Betts. The tricky thing is, how do you justify going out and taking the ball away from him if you leave him in to face Mookie and say he gets a strikeout or a quick ground out? Well, now you've got to explain, you know, again, and you don't have to explain anything to a pitcher, but it just looks weird that, you know, at that point, he's got the momentum. You want to stick with him, but then if he's facing those guys the third time through the lineup, now you start getting in trouble as he starts to face guys like Seager. So I think that may have played a little bit into the decision as well of like, even if they leave him in to face Mookie, well, then it's a catch 22 because you're having to face, you know, do you want to leave the guy who has gotten his rhythm back and has been so good in to face the guys you don't want him to face? Or do you want to pull him with little to no explanation? I feel like that played into it maybe a little bit as well yeah it's sort of like do what we usually do or sort of feel out the moment and like i feel like most managers would have left him in but the rays aren't like most teams that's why they got there so um yeah i completely understand that and you know it, it seemed pretty cut and dry that they just weren't going to let him go through the third time through the order which you know 
hindsight is twenty twenty. As far as that being maybe a mistake, I, I, I thought I would have liked to see him go. I mean, if he strikes out Mookie and he looks just as dominant as he had the rest of the game, and then a lefty and Seager is coming up, then I suppose it's probably a smart just leave him in for Seager. Um, which I guess is kind of backtracking a little bit, but um, I don't know. It's, it's it's a weird position to be in, but I think that. You know, they, they felt it out, and Cash is probably the most, you know, I guess, into it manager in the game, and he just felt that it was, you know, not their smart decision. So he got them there, and that was a costly decision. Everyone's going to kill him, but again, it's also not the reason they lost the game. They lost the game because they couldn't score. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think anyone that blames Kevin Cash for what happened is out of their minds when you consider how great, again, he did a fantastic job all season, all postseason. I don't think that this was a decision that, you know, the memes come out and they're like, ah, the Dodgers MVP was, you know, Cash. But let's be honest, the Dodgers MVP was going to be one of two guys. And this is another discussion I wanted to have with you. So Corey Seager ends up winning the MVP for the World Series. His postseason numbers are some of the stupidest things I've ever seen in my life. I remember at one point he stepped to the plate. I think he was hitting 479 in the World Series, and that was through five games. Um, the other guy that a lot of people thought might have had a chance, other than you know maybe if Kershaw got some kind of a, a late-game appearance, was Mookie Betts. Um, I think the thing with Mookie for me is that he really was the the difference maker, in my opinion, between last year's Dodgers team and the year before that's Dodgers team and this year's Dodgers team. How many defensive plays did he make this postseason where he keeps a run or two off the board and then doing it with the bat as well? Home runs, key RBIs. I mean, he was all over the place. Um, really quickly, I wanted to just get two two takes from you. I wanted to hear what your thoughts were on how crucial Mookie Betts was to this Dodgers team winning the World Series. Now, I also wanted to ask you if you thought Corey Seager was undoubtedly, which I think we would agree, the right pick for World Series MVP. Yeah, I'll start with Seager. I, I think he is undoubtedly the MVP. I mean, uh, he hit 400 this series with an OPS <laughs> of 1,200. A couple of home runs, big home runs too. Uh, he had the game-winning or the series-winning RBI, really, when he... You know, it was just a chopper to the right side, but it was enough to get Mookie Betts home. Um, five RBIs. Max Muncy was the only player on the Dodgers that had more. Yeah, I, I thought that Seager, and, and you talk about big difference makers between, you know, a big difference maker that Mookie Betts is for this year's Dodgers team compared to last year's teams. Corey Seager, I think, is, you know, not quite as much because Mookie Betts is an MVP talent, but I guess, well, I guess Seager is too. Um, he also is such a difference maker because after his, you know, a really hot start to his career and then he gets hurt and he doesn't play and then he kind of has to slowly work his way back up. And last year he, we started to see, you know, the potential from Seager to get back to where he was before the injury. And then this year it completely exploded a 152 OPS plus, And then he dominated the postseason. This is a guy who had MVP buzz when he was coming up through the minors, and to see him sort of really fully come out of his shell in this postseason is, is a really warm sight for the Dodgers. Um, as for Mookie Betts, um, obviously, I mean, anytime you can trade for an MVP, you can you do it, and they did it in a way that didn't totally, you know, it, it didn't gut them. They had plenty of assets to spare in Mookie Betts. You're right, though, the defense is something to take consideration for MVP too, because my God, I mean, it was like every other game mm -hmm. or it was maybe every game of that brave series and like every other game of this race series. So, um, 
yeah, I mean, that's going to be a one-two punch. And, you know, those two leading off games, that's horrifying. So that's going to be a one-two punch for, you know, the 2020s to look out for. Well, and if you rewind back a series before, he did it a couple of times against the Padres, too. I mean, I think he took away two home runs in the Padres series, too. So, yeah, Mookie Betts uh, all over the place. Uh, let's let's take a step back. Uh, let's kind of put a wrap on the season. Before we do, I wanted to just kind of mention one thing. It's not... I'm not going to get out here and make and get on my soapbox about it, but I did think it was worth mentioning just with the kind of news that it made. So Justin Turner tested positive for COVID-19 midway through the game. He gets pulled. He comes back out to celebrate with his team. There are pictures of you know him, obviously you know celebrating with with his wife and with everybody else on the team. And you know some of them are kind of concerning when you're looking at you know he's next to Dave Roberts with his mask off. What was kind of just your takeaway from from that whole situation? Because obviously it's a bad look, but I mean, do you think it's as, as big of a deal as people are making it out to be? Or do you think he's almost justified in like, look, this team finally won a World Series. He wanted to go out and be a part of the celebration. It's not worth it if somebody dies. I agree. Um, I thought it was, I couldn't believe my eyes, really. I mean, I couldn't believe, I mean, when he got took, taken out in the eighth inning for Edwin Rios, it was like, this is a strange move. Did he tweak his ankle or something like that? They mm-hmm. feel like they're all this game. Um, and then when it was announced that he got taken out for COVID because he had an inconclusive test before the game and it, they still let him play. It was like, <laughs> what is going on? What was the whole point of, of like doing the, the whole bubble and everything like that? If, you know, if, if, you know, one person in the bubble has it and they're all bubbled together, then that exposes everybody who's in the bubble. And then what's the point of the bubble? Um, and then to see him, which go out there for the celebrations, and apparently he was told not to, and he did it anyway, is kind of a slap in the face to the whole thing. Um, and it's kind of a slap in the face to people who are taking this really seriously. Because, And I get it. I, I get the human element. And I felt awful for Justin Turner because he's been part of this team for all these heartbreaks, and he, they don't win without him. I mean, he's such a heart and soul of this team in a lot of ways. So it was heartbreaking to see that he couldn't be out there. And then all of a sudden he was out there and he was, you know, taking pictures without his mask on next to Dave Roberts, who's a cancer survivor. And um, it, it's just hugging all of his teammates and stuff like that. And probably who knows when the cameras are not on, you know, if that mask is on or not. And now we, we can't really, I don't really trust it now. So I thought it was horrendous. I, I, I really couldn't believe my eyes. And when Manfred was talking about it, it was just like, man, this sport just doesn't have its act together at all. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think that this is something that I almost expect out of like the NFL, um, more so than the MLB. And you're right. I mean, the thing is, when you put everybody in a bubble like that, if somebody gets exposed and they're allowed to do something like that, then the bubble just becomes like a, a super spreader event. Um, so it's definitely concerning. And like you said, it's definitely not worth it, especially, you know, with him being right next to Dave Roberts, who in addition to being a cancer survivor, as you mentioned, is a little bit on the older side. I mean, he's, he's definitely somebody who is at higher risk. Um, and I, I don't think there's anything to be made of this at all, but there was also, I know there's some, some memes coming out of, uh, Manfred's little speech next to his car, uh, the tail end of that, where he was kind of stammering a little bit through it and people were like, is, is Rob Manfred okay? Um, but yeah, I, I think the important thing is that they made it through the season. It's all over now. Um, it'll be interesting to see what kind of fallout there is from this. It'll be interesting to see if Major League Baseball decides to take action, but I completely agree. When lives are on the line, it's just not worth it. Um, so again, I didn't want to make too much of that. I just wanted to kind of bring it up because it was some major news. Um, but now let's have a little fun. Let's let's step back and take a look really quickly at the 16 teams that made the playoffs. We're not going to talk about all of them, obviously, but I did have a few teams that I kind of wanted to just uh, just ask you about heading into the 2021 season. 
So first of all, between do you think that you could you would say comfortably that heading into next year, and obviously we'll have the hot stave, we'll have the off season, we'll have a lot of moves made. But at this point in time, are the Dodgers heavy favorites, not just favorites, heavy favorites to repeat as world champions next year? Heavy favorites. Um, I wouldn't say they're heavy favorites, but I would say that they're comfortable favorites. Okay. Um, the, the Braves were up three to one on them and took them to seven games. Um, and the Braves are getting Mike Soroka back. Um, they could add to that pitching arsenal a little bit. They have some young guys who've got some more experience this year. So the Braves are definitely the National League's heavy hitter to, to you know be their prime contender. The Padres are another one, too, considering Kenzie Gore's in the wings. And so that rotation, if Lamette and Clevenger were healthy, who knows? They might have at least made the Dodgers sweat a little bit. Um and then you add potentially Mackenzie Gore to that mix, and who knows if Paddock gets his act together a little bit more than, you know, they, the Padres could be an interesting team. And then, of course, I think the Rays, and then you can't undermine the Yankees because the Yankees were not healthy this year. And if they, you know, are healthier next year, which hasn't really happened in the last couple of years, but <laughs> if the Yankees team is a pretty good foil to the Dodgers. So I would say comfortable favorites because the Dodgers are just have the best, like, you know, hitting, defense, pitching combination of anybody and you know some young talent to bring up as well we didn't see much of gavin lux this year who knows if josiah gray will be ready for next year so um i would say comfortable favorites okay um a couple of other teams you actually already touched on a few of the ones i wanted to ask about i think really quickly i don't think there's too much more to say on the braves they are the heavy hitter they are going to get some depth back i think also it's important to remember how young this braves team is they're going to be around for a while in this in this national league um, the Padres are another team that they have a lot of potential. I know how much fun Slam Diego was. I know I kind of went all in on Slam Diego maybe making a run this year, and that didn't happen. In, in the offseason, when you kind of look at the free agency market, what do you think this Padres team might be able to go out and add in the offseason to kind of, you know, because I think right now they are in that second tier in the National League behind the Dodgers and Braves. Um, but what do you think they could go and acquire potentially or maybe even trade for uh, to kind of boost themselves up into that upper echelon in the National League? That's just in question because pitch, starting rotation-wise, they should be good. They mm-hmm. should be, be rock solid, especially if Mackenzie Gore comes up and he gets a more normal spring training and he's able to you know, contribute right away next year, then they should be solid there. Uh, bullpen-wise, they, they struggled this year, even though they had a lot of guys heading into the season that had a high expectations for. Kirby Yates, I think, might be a little bit of, an, you know, of a fluke. I, I don't expect him to be that bad next year. Uh, Pomerantz ended up being really good for them there. So if they got a couple more like long relief or long relief types, maybe that could help a little bit. But um, I think that they could use another sort of middle of the lineup bat because Hosmer and Will Myers were both excellent for them this year, and that is not a consistent, mm-hmm. you know, really reliable source of offense for them. So while they'll have Machado and Tatis at the top of the lineup, I think they could do with another sort of middle of the lineup bat that they may be able to trade for. Um, so that would be sort of something to look for from the Padres, and I want to make that next step. Okay, fair enough. One more National League team I wanted to ask you about, a team that got swept in the first round, in that wild card round. I want to talk to you very briefly about the Chicago Cubs because a lot of people are asking the question, is it time for this Cubs team to maybe think about dismantling or is it time for them to just try to retool again? Because I feel like the last couple of years, since they won the World Series, they just have not been able to get it done in October. They've really struggled to get back to that precipice. And, you know, when you look at the age of some of the guys that are in the core and when you look at some of the pieces that they have 
I think it's a worthwhile question of asking if this is a team that's going to be able to do anything to remain competitive in a National League where, again, you have to deal with the Dodgers, you have to deal with the Braves, and now even a Padres team that's gotten really hot. What's kind of your takeaway heading into the offseason here for the Chicago Cubs? I think you're right. I mean, I, I, I had high expecta- I had higher expectations for the Cubs in the playoffs. Um, and, I mean, they... <laughs> Losing to Miami is pretty embarrassing. <laughs> oh, the pitching is getting older. Yu Darvish was still excellent this year, but the rest of the rotations looking. You know, I suppose the Darvish Hendricks combo is good, but like Lester and I don't know how you know much you want to trust Quintana. Uh, it just seems stale to me. Um, and while on paper they still should be able to compete with the lineup they have and their top end of the rotation and well, the bullpen's terrible, but <laughs> if I would think that they'd continue to compete, but I would have thought that about the last four years, and they haven't done anything. So um, it may be time to at least think about trading one of your bigger guys to maybe getting some more depth in some other areas. Um, I don't know if you have to totally knock it down. I, you know, if they did, then you know, you just kind of let you know, David Ross manage a younger team, let them develop and, and kind of get them up for a new run in the middle of this, of this decade. So um, I don't know, but they, they better do something to change things up because it's just it's been stale. It just hasn't worked. Yeah, I think the concern with the Cubs is when you look at some of the guys that they have, you, your concern is that if they start losing value and you just start backsliding, then you can't even trade them for anything. Um, and so I think when you look at again, you've got a lot of good pieces. You've got Chris Bryant, you've got Javi Baez, you've got Anthony Rizzo. I mean, there are guys up and down this lineup and in the pitching staff that I think are really good and really worth a lot right now if you want to go after some depth. But yeah, it's just a thing of like, you don't want to see those guys start to just kind of backslide a little bit and then you're left with nowhere to go but down. And that's a much longer rebuild than if you make a trade right now. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the Cubs decide to do. I, I really have no idea personally what they're going to, what decisions they're going to make. But I also don't think anyone else, even the even the top analysts that like to speculate on these things, know what's going on inside that Cubs organization right now. Um, there were a couple of teams in the American League that I wanted to touch on very briefly. You mentioned the New York Yankees. I don't want to go too much more onto them. I agree. If they can stay healthy, which is something they just haven't been able to do, um, I think they're a much scarier team, obviously. I wanted to ask you about two teams that played each other in the wildcard round, the A's and the White Sox. So this is an A's team that, I, I swear, every year they get to the postseason and it's like, oh, cool, the A's and the small market team and, you know, Moneyball, they made the playoffs and then they just don't do anything. Um, they were the two seed this year. I mean, they were the they were the second best team in the American League by record. What do you think the A's need to do to turn into more of like what the Rays were this year, a team that you feel like, you know, walking into the postseason has a legitimate chance to get there? And I'm just going to leave it at that. We'll, we'll talk about the White Sox here in a minute. Well... I thought that the A's actually had a decent shot at the pennant if Matt Chapman were healthy. Um, because, I mean, Matt Chapman's like a top five MVP guy um, probably for the next, I don't know, seven years or so, I would think. I mean, he's that good. And he wasn't healthy this year. He only played 37 games and he missed the playoffs. I think a healthy Matt Chapman um, does wonders for them. They have a second base hole. They they filled it with Tommy Lasella, which worked really well. But now Lasella is a free agent, so they have to sort of figure out what to do there. The lineup was a bit inconsistent, especially when Chapman went down. Um, so I feel like they could use maybe another outfielder. 
would be pretty helpful, a corner outfielder to play alongside Laureano. And uh, rotation-wise, I think that as their younger guys kind of grow into their roles a little bit more, that will be very helpful. Maybe a back end of the rotation guy can eat up innings and put up like a 4-3 ERA kind of a guy. Um, and then that bullpen's lights out. So I don't think they're too far. I think they're like a couple of pieces away. And although they underachieved this year as far as playoff success, I think a healthy Chapman gives them, you know, a decent shot. So I don't know. I, I, I don't think – I think if you're the A's, you're pretty happy where you're at. So uh, I expect this team to be sort of a heavy hitter in the next few years. Okay, interesting. It'll also be interesting to see kind of where the A's go without Billy Bean. I know he, obviously he's not the man pulling all of the strings, but it'll be different to see kind of what they look like going forward without him. Um, the Chicago White Sox making some news today as they hired Tony La Russa. Um, this feels like a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, it's like one of the most old school managers in baseball and they're going to bring him in to coach a team that is, in addition to being very young, does kind of rely pretty heavily on the analytics stuff right now. So what is what is kind of your takeaway from this signing? And then also, really quickly, I just wanted to mention, uh, Jake from Cespedes Family Barbecue said on the show two weeks ago that if they signed Tony La Russa, he would walk from New York City to Chicago. And his co-host said, like, look, we're going to hold you to that. Like, it's going to get cold, and we're going to make you do it. Um, so if, if he ends up making that walk for charity, as he said he would, uh, man, I feel really bad for him right now. That's a long walk. <laughs> it is a long it, walk. It, it is not the time of year you want to be doing that walk. No. I, like, you should probably wait till like the spring <laughs> and then do the walk. Um, uh, what do I think about Tony La Russa? I have no idea. I, I, I'm, I'm going to be frank. Okay, sure. I, yeah. This guy managed the White Sox. He got he originally got hired by the White Sox to be the manager in 1979. Oh, geez. And he hasn't managed since he won the World Series. He, he re, or I guess, quote unquote, retired on top, winning the World Series with the Cardinals in 2011. It's been nine years mm-hmm. since he managed a game. And I know he's been a big part in baseball. He was a part of the front office for the Diamondbacks and, of course, in the league office itself. So, um, you know, his knowledge of baseball is unquestioned. It's just the mesh between a young kind of high level of swag team with, you know, an analytical push that goes for, you know, power, power versus, you know, the, as you said, kind of old school thinking of Larissa. I, I'm curious if, you know, Larissa is sort of a guy who kind of adapts with the times. He, he did prove to be like that throughout his ten or throughout his career as a manager, but I have no idea. I mean, he could be. I mean, it could be a disaster, like you think, or it could be, you know, something that kind of helps reel the White Sox in a little bit, makes them tighter, and makes them better. I have no idea. Sure. I mean, as a Royals fan, I think you know, I kind of lean towards the disaster, and if that's what happens, I'm totally okay with it. I mean, he's in my division now. Um, but yeah, I, I don't really know what's going to happen. Like you said, if he if he can adapt, I think he could potentially be an asset. But you just you have no sample size since he hasn't managed since 2011 to really say whether or not he's capable of doing that in the 21st century. So, you know, again, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, no idea really what goes on with that. That is all for the teams that I wanted to talk about. But before we go, I wanted to ask you one last question. Assuming that they keep this expanded playoff, which personally I am not a fan of, but you know I know there's been talk between Manfred and a couple other guys in the front office that they might be you know maintaining that going forward. Give I think it'll me, be sick. 
I think it'll be six. But continue. Sure. And let let. Well, and I was going to say this. So I want to talk about. Give me one team from the American League or the National League that was in the top six, other than the Marlins. The Marlins don't count. <laughs> give me give me one of those teams that you think is going to just completely fall off next year, or that you think has the most likely chance to fall off next year. And give me one team either from the bottom three of the po- the bottom two of the postseason or a team that didn't make the playoffs this year that you think has a chance to really come up and surprise some people with a really, really impressive 2021 season. Maybe the Cubs, if they do, you know, switch things up and sort of knock it down, try again, retool, doesn't work. One of those. Because... Um, there's no other team in the National League because you can't pick the Marlins that I see that <laughs> thing too. The Cardinals are just too consistently competent. Yeah. And the Braves are young and exciting. The Padres are young and exciting. The Dodgers are the Dodgers. So I, I don't see anything in the National League. I really like the A's. Um, the Twins are too, I think are too talented or else the, although the, uh, the playoff monkey on the back is a concern. Um, and then like the Rays and Yankees, I expect to be right up there. Cleveland, I think this year did a nice job sort of retooling. Um, so I don't think that they fall apart unless they're like, all right, well, Lindor's contract's almost up. Carrasco's 33. Let's, let's, let's trade a bunch of guys, which is not out of the realm of possibility either. But I also think they're good at retooling and staying competitive. So I'd probably say the Cubs. The Astros are another one, but they kind of came out with that edge in the playoffs that made me think they're going to carry that into the next year. So I'd probably pick the Cubs. Okay. Um, team didn't make it or in those bottom two slots um i would have said the white Sox because i really like the white Sox, and you know they're getting to get kopech back we'll, we'll see what he looks like um dane dunning looked good and you know i you know the top end of the rotation looks good the offense looks good we'll, we'll see what the fits like with the rusa <laughs> uh, I, I i just don't know um i have to pick a national league team i mean it was <laughs> The Philadelphia Phillies, if they don't have the worst bullpen of all time, they, they're a playoff team. So that's a team that I'm looking at like, you guys better make the playoffs. I mean, you spent all this money and all these assets to get Bryce Harper and you know, get McCutcheon and Gene Segura. And you know, Real Muto's a free agent, so we'll see what happens with that. But that, that's a team I'm looking at like, you guys better make it. Like, you can't like not make it for the first three years of this Harper experience. Yeah, I mean, if the Phillies miss the playoffs again, that is just, at that point, that's a knock on the organization. That is like, you you have completely bungled one of the easiest things. And like, how did they miss it this year? It was an expanded eight-team playoff, and they still managed somehow to not make the postseason. I know you mentioned the bullpen numbers were just an absolute travesty. Um, you kind of took my picks, but I, I agree with you. I think the teams most likely to fall off, and it's just going to be based on retooling, are probably the Cubs and Indians. Um, and then I think on the other side of it, I would have said the White Sox too, but the Larusa hire does have me a little concerned. Now, granted, if he can adapt and this team can continue to build, I think this is a White Sox team that we could see jump up into you know that four or five seed range next year. Um, but it all just really depends on what happens. And again, it'll be very interesting to see um, what happens with the playoff format. Really quickly, before I let you go, I did want to ask: uh, Do you are are you a fan of the expanded playoff? And are you a fan of the? Uh, the whole idea of players starting on second base and extra innings. I like an expanded playoffs to six. Eight is too much because in a, I, I liked the eight-team playoff in a 60-game season, but when it's 162 games, it's kind of unfair. Mm-hmm. 
place like you know the Do- a Dodgers team that would have won like 105 games in a three game series against a team that won 83 games. Um, that's just not you know one bad start, and all of a sudden the Dodgers are like, uh oh, are we gonna lose to what was the eighth seed this year? Again? The Brewers. Uh-oh. That's right. <laughs> I, I, they were so that, that was such a you know. Whatever. It was very so, upsetting. Yeah. yeah. About it. But um, yeah, no, I, I think six works. And you can kind of do that wild card round best of three thing with like seeds uh, three through six, and then give the top two seeds like a like a three days off kind of a thing, and then and then you can do like the you know divisional series from there, and then the championship series go to the World Series. I, I think that works better. The one game wild card is a blast every single year, but it, it's terrible at the same time because. <laughs> I mean, there could just be a big discrepancy in the, the top two teams and then one bad start and then all of a sudden, uh-oh, you're out of the playoffs in one game. It's just, it's just It kind of undermines the 162-game push. So I, I like the six-team the six team playoff. And okay. then for, for, for extra innings, uh, just go back to normal. You, you don't need to like squeeze all these games in. Uh, hopefully, they don't have to squeeze all these like games into a 60-game season anymore. So... Yeah, you just go back to normal there. Yeah, I completely agree. Go back to normal. I'm not a fan of having a player on or a runner on second to start the inning. I'm also like, I, again, I know they mentioned it. Um, if they ever put ties into Major League Baseball, I'm, I might lose my mind. Um, and I'm not even a traditionalist. Like, I love the newer stuff for the most part, but that's just bad. I mean, baseball should never have ties. Part of what makes baseball so fun. I mean, I remember when we were at Arizona State, we would stay up and watch. Uh, I think there was like a Giants-Rockies game that went like, what, six, 15, 16 innings or something like that? Yeah, something like that. And we stayed up super late to watch it. It's just a blast. It, it makes the, the eventual victory mean that much more. Um, and for the playoffs, I'm actually a fan. I, I love, and again, I know I'm biased as a Royals fan, but that one game wild card is so fun. And I think the other thing is you do really have to reward teams for slogging through a 162 game season and putting together as many wins as what they do. I think if you don't win enough games, personally, I don't think you deserve, you know, to have a best two out of three. I don't have an issue with having, you know, just a five game or a five team playoff set up um, where you've got that one game wild card. But again, that's just me. I wouldn't hate to see a six-team playoff. I don't dislike that. Um, I just like the one-game wild card a little bit more. But yeah, I completely agree. There's no reason in a regular season to have eight teams out of each con- or out of each uh, out of each league in the postseason. So that'll about wrap it up for us. Um, Alex, thank you once again so much for coming on, talking some baseball today. For sure. Anytime. So, moving on from World Series talk and getting into a little something different. Usually, we like to talk Formula One. If we do, we like to talk about it at the beginning or the end of the show. Today, it's going to come right in the middle, and I want to go ahead and introduce our next guest, Ethan Jordan, friend of the show, returning here. And once again, Ethan, I do have to inform you, uh, you would be breaking Koki Riley's record, but he will be coming on later in the show to talk some NFL. So, unfortunately, you won't be breaking that today, but it's always good to have you on. I believe we're tied, unless he's been on since I haven't been. But I don't no. No, there was not an episode run while I was uh, driving out to North Carolina. It was a, a very busy week. Um, but yeah, I'm let's. Just saying, I'm just saying, Joe Buck did his podcast last week. That's true. That's true. Joe Joe Buck also makes a little bit more money to do that than I do. Uh, my podcast isn't quite pulling in the uh, the same kind of moolah as Joe Buck. But let's get right into it. So Formula One, a lot of good things going on um, over the course of the last week. A race that I uh, I will admit I did watch a little bit of in my car. Um, which probably wasn't the greatest idea in the world. But when Lewis Hamilton is about to do what he did this week, um, I wanted to just kind of to see that and just kind of get to be a part of it a little bit. 
Um, so obviously, if you don't know, Lewis Hamilton this weekend broke the all-time record for the most wins. He breaks Michael Schumacher's record of 91 career wins, 92 for Lewis Hamilton. And maybe the most impressive thing to me, Ethan, he did this at age 35. Lewis Hamilton is about to raise the watermark to a point that the sport has never seen at any point in its very, very long history. Well, he's the greatest driver of all time, and now he has the most wins all time. What else can you say about Lewis Hamilton? He, he's he's the greatest driver ever, and he, again, showed us why this past Sunday. Yeah, I don't think there's really much disputing that at this point. He's the all-time leader in career wins with 92. He's the all-time leader in career points with 3,687. The all-time leader in pole positions with 97. The all-time leader in podium finishes with 161. Points finishes with 225. Championship points in a season with 413. And a ton of other just accomplishments throughout the course of his career. It goes on and on. And yes, people can say, well, yeah, he was driving in the Mercedes that entire time. But let's keep in mind, he's had some pretty good teammates pushing him. Valtteri Bottas is no pushover. And you can say the same of Nico Rosberg. He has really been pressured by other drivers in the exact same machinery. And yet at the end of the day, he is always able not only to beat them by narrow margins, but a lot of times, especially with Bottas this year, he's just been on another planet in terms of what he can get out of that car. Not beating them every time, as Nico Rosberg would remind you. Of course. But <laughs> no, it's you know, other than Hamilton's car failing on that last race in 2016, he would have a ridiculous streak. But yeah, I mean, he's had real he's had real challenges in the past, and even when he was with McLaren, you saw that this guy was something special. This is not a car making the driver that is not the case and need we remind you every great driver has had a great car underneath of them there's never been a great driver where you're like yeah this guy's up there and wins <laughs> and he got it done in you know the equivalent of a Haas or something that's never happened the best drivers always have the best cars for the most part you don't get to where you're at without a good car yeah, definitely. I, I think that, you know, again, it's going to be those top three always are the only ones that really have a chance to get their drivers a world championship. There really hasn't been a season where we've seen somebody push a car, even in the mid-range. I mean, you just you just don't see a car in the midfield come out and compete with the big boys every week. It's not going to happen. Um, every now and then, you know, you do get like Pierre Gasly will win a race, as we saw this season. Um, in that Alpha Tauri, but it's just it's just such a, a rare occurrence to see. So congrats, hats off um, to Lewis Hamilton. I know a lot of people like to talk about, you know, it's it's difficult to compare eras when you're talking about these drivers because the machinery is different. But here's the thing that every driver in every single era of racing has had to encounter. They're up against teams that are using similar to machinery to what they have at their disposal. And I think Lewis Hamilton's ability to dominate within his era with other teams like the Ferrari teams of years past, we'll not talk about about this year's Ferrari team, um, with the Red Bull teams of years past. I mean, he's had some stiff competition, and yet he's still always been able to coax those extra wins. So I think, uh, Ethan, you're definitely in agreement with me here. Lewis Hamilton, definitely the greatest of all time, but now adding that one last elusive record to his repertoire and his resume, I think he has that locked up pretty much from here on out. I said it on the top of the show. He's the greatest driver of all time. He has been for a while. I don't know about a while. He has been... He was the greatest driver of all time before this season started. He is probably the greatest driver of all time during last season, maybe even before it started. But for sure, at the beginning of this season, this just this is like when Mariano Rivera 
broke the saves record. Like, okay, the greatest closer of all time now has the most saves of all time. Let's move on. Yep, absolutely. And with that, we will move on. I wanted to talk about, uh, we haven't had a chance to talk Formula One in a couple of weeks. I actually wanted to very briefly um, bring up some things that happened last week. Uh, one of the biggest, of course, being uh, Daniel Ricciardo picking up the first Renault podium in a very long time. I believe since 2004 that had not happened. He's looked very good this year. I think he's done a really good job of really, you know, a lot of people like to talk about Daniel Ricciardo being kind of a second-rate driver. Um, He is a little overrated if you're only talking to the people who have exclusively watched the Netflix series, but I think what Daniel Ricciardo has been able to get out of a Renault car that historically has not really been competitive um, these last couple of seasons, with the exception of that 2018 year, it's really been good to see him kind of get back on the top of his game as he slowly makes that transition to McLaren. Yeah, he's looked pretty good. Um, that Renault has actually looked a little bit better, the car itself as well. It, they look like they might actually have a competent car all of a sudden, which is great. But no, Daniel Ricciardo has outdriven that Renault this year. There's no doubt about it. He's sitting fourth in the driver standings right now in that thing. That's very, very impressive. And, and Daniel Ricardo, you know me, I'm not one of those big Danny Rick world champion guys. <laughs> but he has impressed me this year with his ability to coax some extra seconds off of that Renault. Yeah, I, I think he's going to really transition well to McLaren. That's going to be a great opportunity for him if he can really stay focused and with a good car he could really impress some people, I think. It all depends on that McLaren car. It hasn't impressed me this year. It's not as good as I had hoped. But if he's doing this with a Renault, he'll be just fine in the McLaren. Absolutely. And I think, too, the thing that impresses me the most about Ricardo, if you want to talk about you know what, what he's really been able to do, he is currently, as you mentioned, sitting in fourth place behind Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas, and Max Verstappen in the Drivers' Championship. His teammate who granted has not had the same number of of completed races, but still his teammate is sitting down in 12th in Esteban Ocon. So, you know, it's just, it's interesting to see how far of a gap there is between these guys and their drivers. You can look at the same thing with Max Verstappen and Alex Albon. I know a lot of people like to make that comparison. And granted, Verstappen is a generational talent and Albon is sitting here in his, what, second year in that Red Bull car. But at the same time, you do, I mean, they always say your teammate is your biggest rival because you're using the same exact vehicle as what they have. So, that is one thing that has been very interesting uh, to talk about. I also wanted to, to bring up one more thing. Well, really quickly, before we move on from, from uh, the Daniel Ricardo, the Honey Badger talk, what, uh, what do you think the tattoo that Cyril is going to have to get will be? What do you, what do you, think, uh, what do you think he's going to make him get? I don't know. It's going to be something really stupid. I agree. Because it's, it's Danny Rick. It's, it's going to be something just totally ridiculous. Will it be tasteful? Absolutely not. <laughs> what if it's just what if it's just a tramp stamp of Danny Rick's face? Like how how hilarious would that be? That would be great. Because you know, here's the thing. I'm, I'm on board. Because here's the thing. You got to remember, like like Cyril is not like this laid back, joking around kind of guy. Like he just doesn't strike me. Like he is not thrilled about this. I feel like there's no way he is super happy about this situation. No, not at all. He is upset. It won't be a tramp stamp, though. Oh? I'll tell you that. Because Cyril told him that he gets to choose the location, I think. Okay, okay. 
So probably like yeah. a like an upper arm, like something a sleeve could cover that type of that type of thing. Who knows? And, and I think Cyril actually gets to choose the size of the tattoo. Danny Rick just gets to choose the design. I feel like Cyril's uh, Cyril's choosing of the size might be impacted by what Daniel Ricardo chooses to uh, to get permanently inked on his body. But let's let's move on from that. Uh, there's one other thing that I know you want to talk about. Uh, from the Eiffel Grand Prix a week ago, and that is uh, a man that ended in the points for the first time this season, the man, the myth, the legend, Roman Grosjean, in the points. Ethan, take it away. This is bittersweet news. (laughs) Because Roman Grosjean got in the points. He probably should have been in the points before this, but he got there. And that piece of garbage Haas... I don't think people realize how bad that Haas car is this year. It is god awful. <laughs> and for him and Magnussen to do what they have done in that car this year and last year is really impressive and gets overlooked just because of the fall from Haas in 2018. They were finishing fourth. They were all over it, and then they're they're bad all of a sudden. So people just like to talk about that. That car stinks, and they outdrive that car consistently, I feel. Especially when they're not racing during qualifying. They really outdrive that thing. But it is bittersweet because I don't believe Roman Grosjean will be in Formula One next year. Uh And this is terrible, tragic news that's not that surprising, but still tragic. Magnussen and Grosjean are out at Haas. They're gone because, yes, the problem with Haas is their drivers. (laughs) I, I just don't I don't get it. I get it for Roman and Kevin. I think this was a more of a mutual parting of ways than anything. They won't come out and say that, but I think it was. I don't think Kevin Magnuson and Roman Grosjean want to be at Haas no. anymore. I I don't think they want to work for Gunther or for a car that is underfunded and bad. The problem with that is there are limited seats in Formula One. And there's a small chance Kevin Magnuson, I think, picks up a seat before next year. He deserves one, that's for sure. But I don't. I think Roman Grosjean is on the outs, and I would not be surprised. Yes, you heard it here first. If Roman Grosjean is out of F1 for a little while, not because no one will want to sign him. I think someone would take a flyer on him after 2021. But I think he might go into a different form of racing, whether that's endurance racing or something else, even if it is maybe for Hawks. I don't know. But he, I, I foresee him perhaps going into a different kind of racing. Yeah, uh, Demolition Derby comes to mind. No, I'm just I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, man, I I love we 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 collectively love Roman Grosjean. He is he is so funny. Uh, he's kind of a meme, but at the end of the day, he's just a good guy. And yeah, it, it's kind of a shame. I agree that I think it's more of a mutual parting of ways. Um, what I'm more interested in is who's taking those Haas seats because I was gonna bring this up. It's, it's kind of a segue with the Roman Grosjean thing. You beat me to the punch, but. It's just one of those situations where, like, okay, even if you're offering someone a seat in Formula One, which is a great thing to have, this is probably the worst team to be driving for right now. Even Williams is kind of on the uptick. Um, They've got new ownership. You know, they've been slowly trying to improve that car. I think I agree with you. Kevin Magnussen definitely deserves a spot. 
Um, I think that if the if the Formula One decides to expand uh, in the off season and add another team, I think that could definitely be a good spot for him because unfortunately, a lot of that 2021 field, a lot of those seats have already been filled. But I think Magnussen finds a spot. I don't know what's going to happen with Grosjean, but I am even more fascinated to see what's going to happen with these two Haas seats. Do you have any uh, any any takes on who you think lands there? I think it's going to be one, if not two, of the Ferrari junior drivers. Okay. I don't know exactly who it will be. It, it's hard to say. It could be... Callum, I, I it could be also be Mick Schumacher. I don't know. I think one of those Ferrari junior drivers lands there, if not two, and it kind of becomes a Ferrari training ground. Sure. Um, that's what I think is going to happen. I think they'll go young in that regard. I don't know who. <laughs> Hopefully, they'll pull a Renault and go out and get someone who's retired, and they shouldn't be getting. Frankly, if I was Haas, <laughs> I'd go get two of those Ferrari Academy drivers, but. We'll see what they do. I, I just looked it up. I did not read this earlier, but I read a report that Roman Grosjean is considering endurance racing. Okay. Or, per, or perhaps Formula E. As for Magnussen, he might make the transition to IndyCar if he doesn't get an F1 seat for next year. Really? I can't. I don't know. I, I, I struggle to see K-Mag because I feel like, again, he, he really has outraced his car. He's got a lot more potential. Um, than Grosjean does a lot and another thing with Roman Grosjean he's been around for a while I mean Roman Grosjean was driving in the Lotus and if you don't remember the Lotus team I mean that that just kind of tells you the time frame on that Um, but yeah I, I completely agree I think the best thing that Haas can do at this point would be to go young and the other nice thing is if you kind of become that Ferrari junior program they might get a little bit of help in the one department they needed in the most and that's their bank account uh Haas you said it before it is a bad car because it is an underfunded car. And unfortunately, in Formula One, there is no business model that allows you to be very successful if you don't have enough money to invest in the parts for the car that you're putting your drivers in. So I think that would be a really good move on their part. Um, it also gives Ferrari another avenue to pull younger drivers from. They don't really have as big of a marquee one as what I think Mercedes uh, and Red Bull do. Obviously, Red Bull with AlphaTauri. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see again, which, which of those younger guys come up or again, if Haas does the dumb thing, which, you know, if one team is going to go out and, uh, and get a Stoffel Van Dorn or, you know, a a driver that probably shouldn't be racing in formula one right now, it would be Haas. Um, but yeah, it's just, I, I also, I also wonder if Gunther's, uh, days are numbered a little bit out there just with the kind of uh, just madness that he's brought to Haas. Um, he's not a good guy to work for when they're not winning. I, I get the I get the sense. Yeah, apparently Gunther knows who the two drivers are going to be. Oh, and he just doesn't want to tell anybody. Okay. I, I will say Gunther has to be thrilled to be get, getting rid of Roman Grosjean. Yes. It. I just you just get the feeling he can't stand having him on his team. Um, I, I think I think one of them has to be Mick Schumacher. I think he's got one of those. He's leading the F2 by a solid margin right now. He has to be one of those drivers. As for the other one, who knows? Yeah, no. They could I, go young. They could go old. Who knows with Haas and Gunther. But I think Mick Schumacher's in at Haas next year. Okay. Yeah, no, I, I kind of I kind of agree. I think Schumacher needs needs his shot, especially with what he's been able to accomplish um, at, the, at the younger levels. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what ends up happening with that. But 
let's take a little bit of a look ahead. So the 2020 season, we're getting towards the end here. Um, if you look at the remaining races on the schedule, we just finished up Portugal. We've got a race in Italy, and then we've got a race in Turkey, Bahrain, Bahrain again, and Abu Dhabi. That is it. That is all that is on the calendar from here until the end of the season. So let's set the stage really quickly for all of you at home and just give you an update on where the standings are. Lewis Hamilton will be winning another world championship because, of course, he will. Uh, 256 points for him, 179 for Badas behind him, but... Valtteri just hasn't had the pace to match Lewis Hamilton this season. I think Hamilton is going to cruise to that victory. Probably going to lock that up sometime in the next couple of weeks. Max Verstappen is in third. We mentioned Daniel Ricciardo in fourth. Another guy that's been out driving his car, Sean Leclerc, is in fifth place right now, which is really impressive when you consider that Sebastian Vettel is uh, P13 right now. And really quickly, Ethan, I just wanted to give you an opportunity, if you wanted to, to kind of elaborate on the the skill of Sean Leclerc. Do you think he kind of deserves to be placed up in that tier with uh, with Max Verstappen when we're talking about, you know, kind of generational talents that really, let's be honest, with what he's had to work with this year, it's amazing that he's sitting P5. It's incredible. It, it, I don't quite understand how he's been able to do that. Granted, Vettel needs to get the heck out of Ferrari. It's not a good spot for him right now. So maybe he's underperforming with the car, if anything, a little bit, but that Ferrari isn't good. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. And Leclerc pulled off a P4 finish in the last race as well, finishing behind only the big three, Hamilton, but as for Stappen, I, I've been extremely impressed with him, and I, and I think he is in that standing where there's a tier, Lewis Hamilton, and then it's him and Verstappen. I think they're pretty neck and neck. I would love to see them go at it in not necessarily equal machinery, but you know, actually give Charles Leclerc a chance. I think that would be fun. I wish that Ferrari didn't suck. I really, really do, because that would be a blast to see. They're such different drivers, Leclerc and Verstappen. Verstappen's ultra-aggressive. He's going to finish P2 half the time, but he's also going to DNF couple of times a year because he does crazy things whereas Leclerc is a much more reserved driver much more consistent and just to see those two styles juxtaposed to each other would have been would be really fun and I'm sure we'll get that sometime in the future these two guys aren't going anywhere well, yeah, and coming into the season, this was the matchup everybody wanted to see was Leclerc and the Ferrari against Verstappen and the Red Bull. That was something we were all looking forward to. But yeah, unfortunately, uh, Ferrari failed to put a competitive car on the grid this year. Uh, and we've seen what's happened after that. So really quickly, I want to give you some points on these guys. Ricardo with 80, Leclerc with 75, Sergio Perez with 74, despite the fact that he missed two races due to COVID-19. Lando Norris with 65, Alex Albon with 64, Pierre Gasly with 63, Sainz in 10th in with 59. And then down past that, it's Stroll with 57, Elkhorn with 40, Vettel with 18 points. That is uh, what a season it's been for Sebastian Vettel. Danny Kivat with 14, Hulkenberg with 10, Antonio Giovinazzi with 3, Kimi Raikkonen with 2, Roman Grosjean with 2, Kevin Magnussen with 1, and somehow, someway, once again, both Williams drivers have failed to score a point this year. George Russell has been so close, I believe twice he has finished P11, but he has not yet gotten it done. So, Ethan Jordan, I want to ask you a few questions about just kind of the way that things are shaping up right now. When you look at the 4, 5, 6, 7 battle, where do you think, or sorry, just 4, 5, and 6, Daniel Ricciardo, Sean Leclerc, 
and Sergio Perez. Those guys are neck and neck right now with about four races left to go. Do you think that there's going to be a change in the standings between those three guys, or do you think it kind of finishes as is right now? I think Sergio Perez finishes in fourth. Okay. He is, what, six points behind Ricardo, one behind Leclerc, and he hasn't raced in a few a few of the races, mm-hmm. two of the races, I believe. Three. Yeah. Or, yeah. Let's see. I know Hulkenberg's filled in three times. I think he he's filled in Perez all of those times. Correct. But regardless, he's missed races. He's barely behind them. He's going to finish in fourth. His car is better than both of theirs the end of the day ricardo what he's done is nice but there there's i would be very surprised if sergio perez does not finish in fourth leclerc and ricardo though that's going to be interesting leclerc is the better driver no doubt but those cars both stink i don't know i think leclerc probably finishes fifth and danny falls to sixth if you had to put a gun to my head Interesting. But for sure, Sergio Perez finishes fourth. So I'm in, I'm completely in agreement. I think Perez finishes fourth. I actually think Ricardo is going to finish ahead of Leclerc just because of the car. I mean, and, and if you told me preseason, by the way, that Daniel Ricardo would finish ahead of Sean Leclerc because the Ferrari wasn't going to be able to outpace the Renault, uh, I would have asked you what you were on. But given what we've seen this season, I, I just think that that Renault is capable of sticking in the spot that it's in. Um, but it, I, I agree. I think it will come down to the final couple of races. And man, if we get a, if we get a race between those two where the winner takes the points in Abu Dhabi, that is going to be a blast. Another race that could come down to Abu Dhabi, depending on how this shakes out. And how tasty is this, Mr. Jordan? Pierre Gasly and Alexander Albon currently separated in the standings by a single point. 66 point, or 64 points for Alex Albon, 63 points for Pierre Gasly. Would that not be just the ultimate, like, just the ultimate satisfaction for Pierre Gasly if he can finish in the standings for a full season in the Alpha Tower ahead of the guy that replaced him at Red Bull? Oh, that would be so sweet for Pierre Gasly, who, by the way, will be back at Alpha Tower next year. Mm-hmm. They signed him or extended him. I don't remember exactly how long, but he'll be there for a little bit. Which clearly shows to me that Red Bull is not going to invite him back, so people on Twitter stop saying that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's going to stay in that Alphatari, and he's, he's frankly better in that car for whatever reason. Somehow. Both of those drivers have been so inconsistent this year that I really couldn't tell you who's going to finish ahead of one another. I mean, you've got Gasly, who's won a race, and then one race or two races later, DNF, and then he finishes eighth, and then he finishes ninth. Oh, and by the way... This last week, he finished fifth. He is so inconsistent, and Albon's no better. It is going to, it's really tough to say who is going to finish ahead of each other. At the end of the day, i got to go with the car. I'll say Albon, but it, it's 50-50. Okay. I, I think I agree. I think Albon finishes ahead of Gasly. However, I don't think either one of them finishes in P8. Um, I still think there's a chance for Carlos Sainz. He's just gotten so unlucky in so many of these races. I remember at one point, I believe he DNF'd either three or four out of five. Um, And a lot of those incidents weren't necessarily his fault. He just got caught in a bad spot. But I think he's been getting a lot out of a McLaren car that hasn't been quite as good as we had all hoped this season. 
Um, but I think he could potentially jump up and steal that spot. And oh, by the way, Lando Norris is in the mix as well with 65 points, just one ahead of Albon. Let me really quickly get your rundown. I know you said you thought you'd take the car with Albon. Do you think Albon can pass Lando Norris, who currently sits one point ahead of him in that McLaren? Hmm. Lando Norris over who now? Albon oh, and or Gasly. Over Norris. <clears throat> no, I don't think it happens. Okay, that's fair. I think I, I think Norris has been just too consistently good this year. He's had a couple of races where he hasn't been able to crack the top 10, but for the most part, I think Norris has done a better job, certainly with what he's had to work with, than what Alex Albon has had this year. I mean, I'll tell you what. I think it's very likely that Stroll could finish ahead of all of them. There's a good chance Lance Stroll finishes in given 7th. He, he, there is a world where he could finish in 6th, too. It's not impossible. I I wouldn't necessarily predict it, but it would not be impossible for Lance Stroll to finish in sixth. I've just been so impressed with that racing point this year. We've kind of just come to accept that the racing point is the third best car on the grid right now. But be, so we forget how impressive it is that it is there. No, okay, it's a pink Mercedes. Blah blah blah. Great. It's the it's the third best car on the grid, and what they have done this year is unbelievably impressive. We, I think we have just lost sight of what they've been able to do with that car. I mean, they are third in the constructor standings despite getting penalized and losing, what was it, 10 points, something like that? Yep. And they're still <clears throat> sitting in third, and they're going to finish in third, by the way. I have just been unbelievably blown away by Racing Point. I thought they would be the best team in the midfield, but I did not think they'd be this good. Yeah, I think uh, if you would have told me that the newly rebranded Force India team would be absolutely crushing it, and again, the fact that you know Mercedes has fallen off a little bit this year, Racing Point has been incredible, and when you look at their driver lineup, it's two guys that I don't think had this high of expectations coming into the season. I mean, we all knew that Sergio Perez was a good driver, but I don't think anyone expected that if you gave him a good car, he would be sitting in a position where he could finish the year P4 pretty comfortably. Um, and then again, you look at Lance Stroll, a guy that people made fun of for so long. I made fun of for so long. It's like, you know, he's only got a seat in F1 because of daddy's cash. Um, but man, he has really shut a lot of people, myself included, up when it comes to his performance out there on the grid. And that actually is a perfect segue. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the constructor's standings before we go here. But Mercedes, they're going to win another constructor's title because, of course, they are. That was never in doubt. Uh, 435 points currently for Mercedes. I don't know this for a fact. I feel like they should already have that locked up. Um, I didn't see any announcement about that after this week's race, but they've got nearly double what Red Bull Racing has down at 226. But after that, it it gets pretty interesting again. Um, Racing Point with 126 points. McLaren with 124 and Renault with 120. Ethan, I know I asked you this about three weeks ago, but now that we're down to four races to go, what are you seeing in that midfield battle? Where do you think that these three teams are going to end up? I think they'll stay in the same position they are right now. It stays chalk. Racing Point will finish third. McLaren will finish fourth. Renault will finish fifth. I, I don't know. The Renault-McLaren thing, maybe they make that a little close. I doubt it, though. I think we see, if anything, a bigger separation between these three teams going down the stretch. It, it'll be racing point three, McLaren four, Renault five, barring some kind of weird disaster where both McLarens crash, and I don't know. 
Sure, I, I tend to agree. I think that McLaren, it really, the only reason McLaren only has 124 has been some bad luck when it comes to DNFs. I think that will not continue. Um, I think that Renault could potentially do it if they had a, a better second driver, but Esteban Ocon's just not good enough to get that done for them. Um, I think that having Ricardo driving as well as he is is going to keep them down in that P5 spot. Six is going to stay the same. Seven's going to stay the same. Ferrari with 93, Alpha Tauri with 77. Is there any chance, and this is where it kind of gets chippy, because in a normal race without a lot of DNFs, these are teams that aren't going to score points. But I did want to ask, is there even a prayer for Haas to maybe overtake Alfa Romeo? They only need three points to do it, or two points to tie. I like how we're talking about this. Like, yeah, you know... They're up here, 120, 124, you know, what what could happen? <laughs> they're at five, they're at three. What do, you, what do you think, two points? Can they do it? It's just... It's, this is more of a prop bet question. I'm basically asking you what color the Gatorade shower is going to be. Because I was also going to ask if you think there's any chance for Williams to score a point this year. No, they're not going to score a point. Maybe, maybe they do. Who, who knows? It, it all depends on who, if there's a race or... 10 people crash, uh, then they can score a point. But (laughs) (laughs) I have been really unimpressed with Alfa Romeo this year. I I know they're bad. I know that. But they've been even worse than expected. That car is so unreliable. Giovinazzi, if anything, has impressed me a little bit. He's outdriven that car a bit. Kimi Räikkönen, please retire for your sake. Not not because I don't enjoy watching you. For your sake, you're a world champion. You don't need to be driving this Alfa Romeo garbage I think Haas can do it you know what it, the only problem is are Kevin Magnussen and Roman Grosjean even going to try that's the question I mean I, I don't see maybe K-Mag tries maybe K-Mag goes full send because he wants to score a seat next year well that's he what I'm saying nuts. if anything this basically turns into a contract year situation for K-Mag he knows that if he doesn't if he doesn't do something crazy his odds of getting a look and getting a seat for next season aren't that good and I think I think I agree I think Grosjean is already checked out I think he's got one foot out the door and he's not worried about it but for K-Mag I think that he knows that if he wants to stay in F1 which I think he does when you hear him talk about it he's very passionate about the sport I I think he wants to stay. Um, so I think it's going to take something big for him to do that. But I think if you see K-Mag take that Haas and score anywhere in the points in a normal race these next couple of weeks, um, I think that might be what gets him over the top and what gets him a seat for the 2021 season. Hear me out, though. Okay. Roman Grosjean knows he only has a few more races where he has to deal with Gun- Gunther Steiner. <laughs> okay. If I'm Roman Grosjean, I say, you know what? Now's the time. Full send <laughs> Roman. Just go and race your heart over him. Don't worry about anything. Don't worry about, oh, is Gunther going to get mad if I mess up this race? Or Don't be careful, Roman. Full send. Don't be dangerous. I'm not, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying be that aggressive driver. You know how to be, Roman. If, if Roman no Grosjean heart. in Abu Dhabi, like, turns off his team radio after his final pit stop and is just like, screw you guys, I'm racing this car as hard as I can and somehow finishes like P9, I will fly to Arizona and we will have a party. Um, that would that would just be incredible. What a, what a way for him to possibly uh, end his F1 career if this is in fact the end for Roman Grosjean. And then again, like we said, for Kevin Magnussen, I think he will be back. Um, but yeah, it's going to be fun. We are, we'll definitely keep it locked here, uh, on the TVH sports pod. We'll talk more F1, um, because we're going to have a crazy couple of weeks coming up. As I mentioned, 
Um, a race coming up here in Italy, then one in Turkey, two in Bahrain, and one in Abu Dhabi, and that is it. The 2020 F1 season nearing its end. Uh, Ethan, any more closing thoughts on the current state of things before we head out for the day? I'm just, my heart's not in F1 anymore, Tyler, without, without that man. <laughs> well, enjoy, in there. enjoy it while you have it. They've tainted their product. And, you know, I, I just, I'm sad. But go, Roman. Four more races, you beautiful man. <laughs> All right. Well, as, uh, as Ethan always likes to say, the show must grow Jean, even if, uh, even if grow Jean is not involved. So we'll have more updates coming at you next week. Again, another Grand Prix coming up from Italy. We'll have an update on that. And here in just a moment, be talking to Koki Riley about some NFL action. But Ethan, I want to say thank you once again for stopping by. Always good to have you on the show. Always good to be here. So, one more thing to take care of. Talk a little bit of the NFL. It was a crazy week in the NFL. A lot of things going on, a lot of action. And here to help me break it down is Koki Riley. Koki, welcome back to the show. I'm back to talk some more football. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it was one of those weeks. I'll tell you a little story. Um, so, obviously, on Sunday, I was not supposed to be watching football. I kind of mentioned this to Ethan when we were talking Formula One. I did have YouTube TV and Red Zone pulled up on my phone. Um, so, the early slate, I'm, like, trying to drive to North Carolina, and I've got my phone up, and I'm just kind of keeping an eye on these games. Obviously, you know, focusing on the road, as one should. Um, but you know, I, I saw some crazy things, uh, in the early slate. Let's go ahead and start with a Browns Bengals game that if we're being honest, probably shouldn't have come down to what it came down to. Um, Joe Burrow led one of the better drives I've seen out of a young rookie quarterback down the field, punched it in, took the lead. I thought that that was going to be it, that the Bengals were going to win, but Baker Mayfield, man, he really did show up after starting off 0 for 5. Yeah, I... And maybe he's just better without Odell. Could be. Ewing theory? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Browns Ewing theory. No Chubb, no Odell. Turn all these wins. Um, no, but seriously, though, like, Baker was really good this week. I mean, we talked about him a lot last week in terms of how we've been kind of disappointed at the way he's played so far in his NFL career. But, I mean, this week it was, he was money, especially when the moment after Odell got hurt and – I mean, that really clutch touchdown drive to finish off the game. Like, that was a really exciting, interesting game. Um, have Cleveland, I have some issues with my defense. But if Baker can play that well, then you know, they're interesting. Um, and I still think they're certainly a playoff contender, even though, like, you shouldn't be beating the Bengals at the last second to score a last-second touchdown drive because that's definitely not a playoff team. So, I don't know. They're, they're interesting, though. I keep an eye on Cleveland. Yeah, so one thing, you know I love my sports memes. Uh, one of the ones that's become really prominent over the last couple of weeks is the Baker Mayfield cycle. I don't know if you've seen this or not. Um, and every week, it moves one spot to the left, and it just says, we are here. And we have been, it, it's been so consistent so far this season. So right now, we are at the play amazing for a game stage. Um, next up is call out the doubters, then play like garbage, get criticized by the media, gain an underdog mentality, and then play amazing for a game again. And that has just been what Baker Mayfield has done so consistently this year. It's absolutely incredible. Uh, 
No, make another commercial. Is that not part of the, the equation? Ah, uh, it really should be. He's in all the ads, man. This him and him and Saquon. Although you know, with Saquon, it, it's just it's just tragic because he's not playing. But yeah, it's it's amazing to me how many commercials Baker Mayfield is doing this year. Yeah, well, they just showed the one. Um, I mean, we're recording this um, during the Panthers Falcons game, mm-hmm. and while I was watching that game before we started this, they showed the one where they do the book club, right? Ah, uh, yes. And that's the best one. Or yeah, you know, they got the rookie offensive lineman. He's like, <laughs> we need to vote Debbie out of the book club, and then they all vote around the book club because she didn't show up because Baker brought cheese. So yeah, that's that's, that's what really Debbie gets, one. man. You got to show up to the book club. Everyone knows if you're going to be a part of a book book club, you got to show up. Baker Mayfield know. knows about his book clubs. Um, I know she didn't show up for multiple weeks, though, Tyler. It's so embarrassing. That's a real no. That is absolutely yeah. embarrassing. <laughs> Moving on. I uh, don't want to spend the entire podcast talking about Baker Mayfield, though. Although we could, uh, but we won't. Uh, let's talk about really quickly. I'm just going to throw it out there, and then we can move on. Uh, this week also solidified something that we already knew, but it's just embarrassing how effectively it's playing out. Um, the NFC East is just a it's a dumpster fire in another dumpster fire. Maybe a third dumpster fire involved. Not sure. Um, the Eagles beat the Giants by one point this week, and the Washington football team absolutely annihilated the Cowboys. Is there any way, Koki Riley, that we can petition the NFL to make it to where none of these teams make the playoffs? Because none of them are going to deserve it. I sent you the, the link to this petition two weeks ago. Why haven't you signed it? I, I don't know. I must've, it must have gotten lost in transit. I will, you know I'd sign it. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's me and another 5 million other signatures in order to get rid to eliminate um, all the teams in the NFC East from playoff contention. So See, I, I will say this. We, we have a golden opportunity this year because, honestly, if things keep playing out like this, we could break the record for the lowest, like the worst record a playoff team has ever had. Because right now it's still 7-9, and nine, right? Yeah, yeah. I remember the 7-9 Seahawks, and they won a playoff game. It was unbelievable. You had the 7-9 Seahawks. You also had a 7-9 Panthers team that tied it. And I'm just sitting here going, like, what is the worst possible outcome at this point for one of the... Like, if, if the NFC East, if they split all of their conference games, man, I mean, they could be in a position where we're looking at, like, a, a six, maybe even a five-win playoff team. It's not going to be good. five is mathematically possible. Okay. Is it? Uh, let me take a look at the NFC East standings here. I, I you may be right, um, because man, it's just it's such an embarrassment. But you might be right. I think given given what we have seen this year, so okay, the Eagles and the Washington Football Team and the Cowboys all have two wins right now. So yeah. if they split the remaining games, I don't know. Five might be possible. They have to um, lose against every single other team they're playing against. Yeah, but like given what Which we've seen this year, it's possible. But... <laughs> it's not likely, but it's possible. It, that, I have trouble believing. I don't know. There's still other bad teams out there. I don't know. I mean, we live in a world, Koki, where the Eagles are leading the division at 2-4-1 and one in like week seven. It's just, the Eagles it, beat the Niners somehow. I don't know. Uh, un- yeah. Jimmy G, but, I don't understand okay, but... that. Um. But anyway, uh, not trying to waste too much time on that either. Just wanted to make sure it got mentioned. I didn't want that to sneak under the radar. Um, There were some other games that happened this week. Bills and Jets. uh, Another one that I don't want to spend too much time on, but it was interesting to me. The Jets got up to that 10-0 lead. The Bills ended up coming back. Koki, what is kind of your takeaway from this Bills team? They haven't looked like themselves these last couple of weeks, and you can chalk that up to the teams that they've played, but I still think they need to kind of kick it back into the gear we saw them have in the first four games of the season. 
I'll be honest, I didn't expect to talk about Bill's Jets when I jumped on this podcast. <laughs> Very briefly. You know what, that's okay. Um, you've made some interesting choices with your with your game picks. But, uh, so what did I see from the Bills and the, and the Jets this week? Oh, just what have you seen from the Bills the last three weeks? I mean, just overall, do you are you concerned with kind of the fact that they've scaled it back? That's the only reason we're talking about this game. The Bills well, have just not looked the same the last three weeks. So... I, I, to me, they couldn't it, it, like they they got a bunch of yards. They were able to move the ball pretty easily, from what I saw in that game. Just they couldn't punch it in the end zone, and they couldn't finish drives, and that was kind of strange. But I, I, I again, like I'm not panicking too too much. I think they've kind of fallen fallen back to earth a little bit, but they're still a playoff team. They're probably the best team in the AFC at the moment, AFC East at the moment. So. I don't know. Like, the playoffs, I, I, I think if anyone thought they were going to make the Super Bowl, I think the last three weeks kind of showed you that that's not possible given how volatile Josh Allen is as a quarterback and how what, much weaker their defense at least seems to be so far this season. So it, they're an interesting case, but I, I would be surprised if they didn't make the playoffs, especially the way New England's playing. Yeah, I think if there's one team that's rejoicing out of all of this, it's the Kansas City Chiefs, because every time there's been a team where it's like, oh, is that the team that's going to maybe take the Chiefs down in the AFC? That team ends up kind of falling back to earth. Um, Really, I think it's going to be interesting to see who Kansas City plays, not if, but when they get to the AFC Championship game. So we've gone over some teams that, you know, weren't necessarily on top of their games. Um, We could also mention the Falcons, but I don't even want to get into that. They did it again. Uh, I don't, I don't understand. And they, they've, they've taken on the Chargers curse too. They find different ways to lose every week. This week, uh, it was actually they, they lost because they scored. Um, Todd Gurley was explicitly told by Matt Ryan not to score a touchdown, and then did it anyway. Um, and then of course Matt Stafford leads a drive down the field, and the Lions end up scoring a touchdown. Also, watch that one in my car. Uh, absolutely nutty that the Falcons managed to do this each and every week. God bless the Atlanta Falcons of 2020 uh, for keeping this year fun for for all of us in the meme community. Um, let's let's talk about a serious game though. Let's talk about Steelers Titans. This was a game that was highly touted coming into this week. This was two undefeateds going at it. I think both of these teams have definitely proven at this point in the season that they're for real. Um, and it was another game where I really thought the Titans had a shot late in this one. But Pittsburgh, man, they're just they're a different beast with that defense this year. And Big Ben isn't regressing as much as I thought he would. Yeah, I mean, you pretty much said it. Um, this Tennessee team is pretty good. It's just that when you stop when you stop or slow down Derrick Henry, it seems like you kind of stop and slow down that team. And I mean, I kind of... So we, I mean, we talked about Ryan Tannehill pretty in depth last week, but again, like when he goes up against a really good defense and he doesn't have that running in the lead on, he looked very human, and he looked more than just very human this past week against the Steelers. He looked bad, so it's. I think this game kind of showed the flaws that's within Tennessee's team, but again, they fight hard. They're really well coached, and that's how they kind of got back in the game. And Ben made a few mistakes, which also kind of opened the door a little more for them, but. Uh, but overall, like you got to be really happy if you're a Steelers fan. Now let me. Um, their now, defense is top five in the league, and their offense is close to the top is top ten at least. So that's a really good team. That's just a really really good team. As long as Big Ben stays healthy, they're definitely a Super Bowl contender. Well, and let me ask you this, Koki: Do you think that the Steelers 
are the team that has the highest chance to potentially take down Kansas City in the playoffs? I mean, if it's going to be one team out of the AFC, do you think that team is Pittsburgh? Um, do you think it's the Titans? Do you think it's the aforementioned but probably not Bills? I mean, who who in the AFC is going to give them a run? Because I know in the preseason, everyone would have said the Ravens, but we've just seen the Ravens cannot beat the Chiefs. Um, I think right now it's the Steelers. I think the Steelers-Ravens game is going to teach a lot about the Ravens. If the Ravens get down early and can't come back to win again, then I, I think it's we can officially say that this is a Ravens team that has to be winning the game for the majority of the game in order to win the game. They can't really come back. And uh, you, can't, you can't make a playoff run if you can't do that. Um, so, yeah, like I, I think this week the Steelers-Ravens game will be kind of the indicator, the uh, the thing that we look at and the, the game that we look at and sort of determine what this Ravens team is and what the Steelers team is too. So that's a big game. All right. Uh, one more game really quickly that I wanted to get just your opinion on. I didn't actually watch this when I was driving through Knoxville um, and had to really, really, really focus on the road. I didn't want to have a game on while this was going on. So I didn't see a minute of this, but I thought Bucks rate or I thought Bucks Raiders had a chance to be a really good game this week. And then when I looked at my phone and I saw that the Bucks took it 45 to 20. Um, this was just a, a massacre. Is it is this Bucks team really like a potential Super Bowl contender like what ESPN is saying? Because I didn't want to believe it just because ESPN has a tendency to overreact to whatever Tom Brady's doing. But man, they are just starting to really take it to these good teams. I don't know if it's just ESPN. I think everyone's like, this Bucks team could make the Super Bowl. And to be honest, it's only, it's, I mean, they've only been this impressive for two weeks. Mm-hmm. And Brady and that Bucks offensive line really hasn't been challenged by a really good pass rush last two weeks I want to see them go up against someone who could, against a team that can like really go after go after Brady in the pocket like once that happens then then we can sort of discuss the whole Bucks thing um, I mean maybe they still end up winning the division because the Saints are, have had their troubles to start the season but I'm not ready to fully buy this Bucks team yet okay I think that's honest. a like I, the Raiders defense isn't anything special like it's 45 points, like, I, 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 when they look good, they look great, and they have all those big names, it's really easy to be like, oh, this Bucks team can make the Super Bowl, but, like, let, let's let's see them against a really good defense. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the hesitance on the Buccaneers is definitely still a safe thing. Um, I, I do think they have a couple of chances to potentially prove what they can do. Um, it won't be this week. This week, of course, they play the Giants. Um, they have a game against another game against New Orleans uh, coming up the week after that. They're not going to be super tested in that. They're not going to be super tested within their division, as we mentioned. It's kind of a, a down division. I will be interested to see what they do against uh, Aaron Donald and the Rams. You talked about a team that can really kind of get after Tom Brady on that side. I'll definitely be intrigued uh, when they take on the Chiefs at home the week after that. That's going to be a fascinating matchup, assuming COVID doesn't play any uh, any kind of havoc into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're going to have a couple of opportunities. I'll definitely be intrigued to see what they look like come playoff time. But this is a Bucks team that I still think I need to see a little bit more out of them. And I agree with you in a context where they're going against a team that can really put some pressure on Brady. And then we'll see uh, what this team is really made of. One more note uh, on this week's game. There was obviously one more game that I wanted to talk to you about. But I wanted to kind of get to it this way. So the NFC West 
the only team that lost this week was a team that played another team from the NFC West. The 49ers absolutely mopped the floor with the Patriots 33-6. Uh, Cam Newton got benched for Jarrett Stidham at one point, uh, which did not go well. Uh, the Rams get a 24-10 victory over the Bears, who I think are starting to trend back into a more realistic direction. And then that Cardinals-Seahawks game, I was worried for a second that that was going to end in a tie, but oh my goodness, what a game we were treated to. I think that's going to be a fun rivalry for a long time to come. Mm, Which one do you want to hit on first? Just Cardinals-Seahawks. I mean, unless you want to talk about the Patriots a little bit. I think we should talk about those two other games. Okay. Um, The Rams-Bears game was kind of interesting because it kind of, I mean, it showed how bad the Bears offense is, and it kind of... And it was like an impressive showing for the Rams. They forced a ton of turnovers. The offense, they were able to move the ball pretty well against a great Bears defense. Um, and the Bears showed showed their holes, like all the things that we suspected that they weren't good at, um, kind of really showed in, a, in an ugly way in that game. But I don't know. They're still they still beat what's now a five and two team. Like that's still a pretty solid win for the Rams. So the Rams are good. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of good teams in the NFC West. And then with the Pats Niners game, I don't have as much to say about it with with Niners on the Niners side because I mean it's hard to really get a gauge on this Niners team that has that's like half of the teams on IR. Yeah. But for the Patriots though, like I think we we got to talk about this. Like they're really bad, and it's uh, it's just not what you want. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Really, they don't have well, any receivers. Cam Newton just forgot how to throw a football. <laughs> I think the thing with the Patriots, so obviously all these people coming into the season that were like, oh, well, as long as they have Belichick, they'll still be great. And I was like, all right, I don't know about great, but I did think that with Cam, they were going to be all right. The thing that concerned me about the Patriots coming into the season were the guys that withdrew from the season due to the COVID stuff. And I think that's really where you're starting to see a lot of these holes. Um, you also have the same issue that they had last year. I believe it was you that said uh, our receivers aren't even like bad. They're just slow. Um, and, and that's really, I mean, Julian Edelman obviously looks, he's showing his age a lot. Uh, Nikhil Harry hasn't been able to get it going. No one else has really been able to get it going in the receiving game. And more to the point, Cam has just not looked good when he's had to throw the ball. And that kind of token wildcat offense that they were running for a couple of weeks, it's just not working now that teams know it's coming. So, you know, I don't really know what the answer is for the Patriots right now, but I'm with you. I think there is very, very valid reason to be concerned um, for this Patriots team because I really don't see them making much noise in the postseason unless they can seriously right the ship sometime soon. You know, they don't have any healthy wide receivers who have been drafted. Really? They don't have a single one. I did not know that. Think about that. That's how much, that's how much they lack talent at wide receiver at the moment. And it really kind of comes to show you that Belichick hasn't drafted well in like eight years, and this has really been kind of the come to Jesus season of like, yeah, you know, you got to draft well in order to, order to make a good NFL team. And the past just haven't drafted well since the Chandler Jones year, and that was a while ago. So uh, it's tough. And then defensively, I mean, we talked about last lack of explosion on the offensive side. Defensively, they don't have any. They don't have any explosive athletes on that end either because the, the Niners just kept on running these sweeps to the outside and these Patriots, these slow Patriots running backs would just get burned every single time. And it was just really tough to watch. They were beaten up like, I mean, they were cut up like Swiss cheese in that game. It was unbelievable. 
Yeah, and that's where you really, again, that's where you really start to miss the guys that decided to withdraw from the season. And if you're the Patriots, I think the other thing that's shocking, it's it's happened very quietly because New Orleans, or New England, sorry, New England looked, looked pretty good at the beginning of the year. I mean, people were talking about the return of Cam and everything else going right for them. But I mean, little by little, bit by bit, they're two and four. At this point in the season, um, we're talking about a, a Patriots team that, depending on what other teams in the in the uh, AFC do, I mean, they could be fighting for their lives and a playoff spot come late, uh, late December, not December, but late November. And that's something we haven't seen a Patriots team struggle to do really in my lifetime that I can remember. Um, they've always just been a lock for the playoffs, and this year they might not be. So in 2008, the Pats missed the playoffs. They went, even though they went 11 and five. I mean, that was absurd. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah. I mean, I can I, I do see where you're going there. Um, but I also think this team's not going to make the playoffs. They're just. I mean, if you look at the way they played the last two weeks, they're no better than Miami. I yeah. Mean, this is a team that lost to Denver at home, and Denver stinks. <laughs> like Denver's really bad, and. Uh, I don't. Yeah, I don't, it, it's free. It, it's just they just don't have the talent to to win games at the moment. If, if Cam's going to be this bad, especially, and if the receivers are going to be hurt, which it, it sounds like Edelman's out for at least a few weeks. So, well, and here's the other problem you run into if you're the Patriots. Look at that schedule. I mean, they. I only see two games on there that I would feel comfortable marking as wins, and that's the two games against the Jets. Um, but aside from that, I mean, it's Buffalo, it's Baltimore, Houston, Arizona, both of the LA teams, and then a game against Miami, and then another game against Buffalo. I mean, they might only win two or three games out of that span other than the New York games. So yeah, I think they're in some serious trouble right now. And you know what, the, you now that you've said it, and now that I've looked at the schedule and really kind of, it's it's had a moment to sink in, I think you're right. I think this Patriots team might they might miss the playoffs pretty comfortably this year. I mean, this this might be the worst Patriots team we've seen in over a decade. Let me think. So the 10-6 team in 2010 was the worst team since since I've been like watching football that the Pats have ever had. That was 10-6. And six. and I, if they get the 10 wins at this point, that would be pretty miraculous. <laughs> they would have to go ten and two the rest of the way for that to happen. Yeah, they, I mean, or eight, eight and two, eight and two. But yeah, I mean, it eight would be two, eight and two. still either way. That's that's very unlikely. Yeah, I mean, it goes to show you. And again, I'm not even just making fun of you for being a, a semi spoiled Boston sports fan. But yeah, I mean, as a Patriots fan, this is the first time you've really had to encounter this. So. It's it's really incredible, and you know I would love to see them kind of right the ship because I think the Patriots being good and hateable is good for football. But man, this this might actually you know people have been saying this is the end of the Patriots dynasty for the last what five or six years, and I think it finally maybe the last three or four years. But this is really this is really happening. Um, well, they absolutely. Got the Bills. They got the Bills this upcoming week, so I think that's going to be an important game to look at and to see. Like if they don't bounce, like. When they've been blown out in the past, they've bounced back in a really spectacular fashion. Um, but if they if they don't beat the Bills or at least come close to beating the Bills, then that's that's I think when we put up the white flag on this team in this season. So. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so uh, one more game I wanted to talk about from last week: Seahawks Cardinals. It goes into overtime. The Cardinals get the win uh, in crazy fashion. When the Cardinals when when Christians and Dejas missed that field goal attempt. I thought it was over. 
I really thought at that point the Cardinals had lost. You give Russell Wilson the potential MVP of this season, the ball back. Um, wait, did I say Christian Zendejas? I meant Zane Gonzalez. My bad. That was yeah. that was yeah. an interesting, uh, interesting little quip. Uh, forks up for mm. for Christian Zendejas. But you know, Wilson gets the ball back, and then late in the game you get a pick, and all of a sudden the Cardinals have life. They're marching down the field. Um, things going really well for them. And then again, just Kyler Murray, he just continues to impress each and every week. Uh, Russell Wilson had a good week, 388 yards, three touchdowns, three interceptions for him in this game. Kyler Murray puts up 360 yards, three touchdowns for him as well. This Cardinals offense is for real. And when the defense shows up and they force those turnovers, this is a deadly Cardinals team. I took some heat in the preseason for saying this team could win 11 games. I feel a little more validated after this win. Hmm. The Cardinals are interesting, but the thing is, like, these Seahawks-Cardinals games are always crazy, mm-hmm. so I don't want to overreact too, too much to this win for them. I still think they have some, they still, I still think they have plenty of holes defensively. They give way too many big plays, for example, and they're just not very disciplined on that side of the ball. Um, and then offensively, it's still a little too much of a makeshift offense, plus, like, as much as I really enjoy, um, uh, I, I'm I'm blanking on his name right now. The running, the back of running it is Edmonds. Oh, Chase Edmonds. As much as I enjoy Edmonds as a as a back, like they they can't really rely on him for carries. You know, he's really just he's really just like the super duper third down back. So I, it, it's they've got a weird little team there. But at the same time, when you have a guy like Kyler and a guy like DeAndre Hopkins, then you can make up for a lot of holes. And at the very least, they're a playoff contender. I don't think that's there's no question about that at the moment but to call them like an like a lock for 10 wins i think it's a little early and i and i did also see like some predictions of them being like oh they could be like a super bowl contender i'm like what, what are we talking about yeah We're i didn't i didn't no i didn't think super bowl contender and it was kind of a hot take to say i mean 11 wins preseason that's that's pretty bold for a team that had not done that before but Again, this this offense is just so explosive. I thought they were going to be in a lot of shootouts, and I thought they had the potential. And here's the other thing. Kyler Murray, I think, is underrated even now because he's so good at scrambling. You see all these plays where he gets open space, and he's just impossible to catch up to. But then you also see him ripping you know, 60 yards through the air, passes downfield, and hitting up oh, guys like DeAndre Hopkins. He's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Oh, don't get me wrong. I love Kyler Murray. This has nothing to do with Kyler. This has nothing to do with, like, with with him not being good enough or anything like that. He's an incredible player. And, uh, I mean, he could be a little more efficient with his throws, but he, you see him improve every single week. And he's really a pleasure to watch, uh, especially living here in Arizona and getting to watch him pretty much every week. It's, it's, really, it's really amazing. Absolutely. So that's a wrap on last week's games. I wanted to talk about a couple of the games coming up this week, and then we'll uh, we'll kind of wrap this up. We've had a long episode today, so again, thank you all for staying tuned in. A lot of good content to get to, the World Series, Formula One, and now the NFL. So there's a game going on right now that's not all that interesting. Falcons-Panthers, you know, it's a close game, but this is not really a, a primetime type game, and there are a lot of bad games this week. Uh, I'm just going to run through a couple of I know I know Bill Simmons likes to talk about the uh, the unwatchables, um, and I don't know about like unwatchable, but man, you look at the games this week, Packers Vikings should be a blowout. Titans Bengals probably won't be all that close. Uh, really quickly, Chiefs and Jets has the biggest spread in an NFL game that I've seen in a very long time. 20 and a half is the spread right now for the Kansas City Chiefs. Are we, are you taking, are you taking that? 
I'm taking. I think I'm taking the under. Really? I'm you wouldn't take. You wouldn't take the Chiefs to cover game. twenty and a half. Yeah, but like the Chiefs could win seventeen handedly and not and like stop trying, you know. True. Well, that's like, if they start that's trying. Dangerous to go with the over there. That's true. I also think this is one of those weeks where we might, we might see the Chiefs run like eight plays. Um, I don't think they're going to be all that concerned. But again, going down the line, Colts and Lions. Uh, yeah, Patriots and Bills could get ugly. Could be interesting if the Patriots have that bounce back week you were kind of projecting. Uh, Broncos and Chargers, eh, whatever. Cowboys and Eagles, nobody cares. Bucks and Giants will be a blowout. But let's talk about some of the games that could get interesting this week. And I think that they're interesting because of the matchups. The first one that I want to talk about is the obvious one. One o'clock, we've got Steelers and Ravens. This is going to be a game where I think we really, I, I think this is going to be more of a measuring stick game for the Ravens than it is for the Steelers, especially if Pittsburgh can get up early, as you alluded to earlier. Um, what are kind of the biggest things you're keeping your eye on in this uh, in this NFC or in this AFC North matchup? Well, I, besides the Raven, oh, well, actually, not a whole ton um, more than what I said earlier in that the Ravens need to get either get up early or find a way to come back because uh, I mean if they if they're if they get down early as may very well happen against this great Steelers team, then they they for once need to figure out a way to throw the ball down the field and and get get a quick score to, to either tie it back up or take the lead again because I don't know, as we've seen so far in the Lamar Jackson era, they're just not very good at coming back in games. Yeah, I completely agree. And we kinda talked about this game a little bit earlier, so I don't wanna I don't want to spend too much time on it. Um, one game that I think has potential to be one of the best games of the week. It's two teams that I feel like have had a lot of hype at different times. It's two teams that I feel like have been both over and underrated by people around the league, but it's put up or shut up time for both the Raiders and the Browns this week, a one o'clock kickoff for that game. And that could get really interesting because like I said, these are two teams that have both over and I think underplayed to their expectations this season already. Um, at different times, both of them coming in looking for a key win. This could be a really fun matchup. Hmm. Mm-hmm. This is a really interesting matchup. Two teams that um are, are just kind of in a strange state of affairs. The the Raiders are interesting to me. I don't really know what to do with the Raiders. I agree. What, what are your thoughts on the Raiders? So my thing with the Raiders, I, I think the Raiders are one of those teams that they have an offense that I feel like. I trust in certain situations. Um, I think that there there is a limit. Like, if you need Derek Carr to start throwing deep downfield, you're in trouble. Uh, but, man, when they've got it rolling and when they don't have a whole lot to worry about, that offense looks awfully good. And the defense is one of those that, like, man, when they generate turnovers, again, they can look really solid. Um, but this is a Raiders team that I just, I still think they're a few pieces away, even with all these young draft picks. That's the other thing. They're very, very young. Um, right now, I, they they are I think still a few pieces away from putting it together. But I think this is a team that they have the core. They just need to add a couple of pieces around that. Darren Waller has been incredible this season. You look at what he's been able to accomplish, um, and then obviously at, at running back Josh Jacobs has been putting on a clinic so far this season. He has become one of the good flashy young RBs in the league. So 
I really do like this team. If nothing else, they're entertaining every single week. But I'm, I'm kind of with you. I don't really know what to do with them because I feel like every time I get really excited about the Raiders, uh, they kind of subvert my expectations and they'll they'll get blown out by the Bucks or you know they'll they'll drop a game that they shouldn't. But it's a similar deal with the Browns. I never bought into the Browns, but there were people that did. Um, I remember last year we were talking about it. these people are like, oh, the Browns are the dark horse Super Bowl pick. And we were like, are you out of your mind? Um, but Cleveland is also kind of in that boat where I don't really know what to do with Cleveland right now. I think I think I know what to do with Cleveland, at least from my perspective. It's because like the two blowout losses they had were against teams that we already knew that they were way better than them. And that's Pittsburgh and Baltimore. Mm-hmm. So once you get those games out of the way, everything else has been about what I expected in terms of you know, heavy on the ground game. Again, this is a Kevin Stefanski offense. They're going to run the same system he had in Minnesota. And with that really, with that strong ground game, even without Nick Chubb in the lineup, you know, it helps, it opens up the game for Baker. And defensively, they're not very good, but they're not, I wouldn't say they're quite incompetent. You know, they're just good enough on that side of the ball that if they control the ball on offense, then they can win games. So, I don't know, I still think, this is like a, I think the Cleveland is like a classic nine-win team, maybe even ten. Um, just because of the way they can control the ball and, and kind of beat bad teams that way. And You know, as we saw from Baker, um, for the majority of the game last week, like, he's a, when he's on, he's good. So, yeah, I mean, when I he's on, he's good, but when he's off, man, is he bad. Oh, we've had some yeah. really bad games out of Baker Mayfield. I mean, you can say the same about Derek Carr. I, I will say this. I think that if, if one of these teams blows the other one out this week, I think I'm going to gain a lot of trust for that team. But I get the feeling that this could be one of those games where we're looking at it at the end, and it's like 37-35, and we finish the game, and we're like, we still don't know what to do with the Raiders and Browns. Um, yeah, I, I, again, I think both of these teams could be interesting. I think these are both teams that could very well make the postseason this year. Uh, I don't think they do anything once they get to the playoffs, but this will be a fun game. This is definitely one you're going to want to keep your eye on. Another game that uh, is going to be interesting, Saints and Bears. Uh, two teams that, well, one team that was supposed to be really good this year and then kind of wasn't, and then one team that was supposed to be meh this year, started off hot, and is kind of falling back to earth. As a Saints fan, I don't really know what to make of this game. Uh, I think that it's it's definitely big that you see the Bears coming off of a loss, um, but they're going to be looking for a little bit of revenge. This game is going to be at Soldier Field. It's probably going to be cold in Chicago. Not freezing, freezing cold, but kind of cold. And we know that Drew Brees is already having enough trouble uh, when he's playing indoors. The other question for me is going to be whether or not Michael Thomas is back, and if he is back, whether or not Michael Thomas is healthy. Because if he's back, but he's playing at like 60%, uh, you're still going to see continuous issues with the Saints offense. Alvin Kamara, when you have to rely on him too much, uh, that is definitely not a good thing. You saw them kind of narrowly squeak by a Panthers team that hasn't really done a whole lot this year to uh, to be ultra impressive. Um but yeah, Saints-Bears, I think it's going to be a really good game. I think it's also going to be one of those games where we're going to learn a little bit more about these two teams. Mm. Yeah, I don't have a whole ton to add there. I think this is kind of a bad matchup if you're the Bears, given how quick the Saints are, um, especially if Michael Thomas is back. Um, that's going to give them really a, a tough dimension to sort of defend. And... And I think on I think on the flip side it's even more of a mismatch because you know, uh, this Bears team doesn't really respond well to pressure and whatnot, and I feel like the Saints have 
a couple of tricks up their sleeve for that. So it'll, I don't know. It's it's going to be interesting, but I think the weather factor is going to be going to be a big factor in this game, of course, because of the whole Drew Brees situation. But at, when you throw Michael Thomas into the mix, I don't, it's hard to really say exactly what's going to happen in this game. Yeah, if you get a healthy Michael Thomas, again, I think that's the key. It's, it's going to be about what percentage he comes back at. You talked a little bit about that Saints pass rush. That's been one of the things that has really, really impressed me so far this season. They have done a phenomenal job getting to the quarterback, and it's not like they haven't necessarily done that in years past, but Man, you look at the guys they have this year. Obviously, you know you've you're, you've got Cameron Jordan. He's always been there. Um, and then on top of that, you have Trey Hendrickson, who has become really impressive to me with what he's been able to do this year. Marcus Davenport has looked really good. Um, Sheldon Rankins is continuing to do what he does. It's just been really, really good to see what those guys up front have been able to do. And I think that's really going to be something they're going to need. Um, if they're going to overcome the woes of Drew Brees, probably in his final year, kind of limping to the finish line of his career. And, you know, that's one of the things where if they can shore up the secondary a little bit, which I don't know if they're going to do, that's the only thing that really gives me any hope that this team might do something in the postseason instead of just, you know, winning a first round game and then getting absolutely destroyed by a Packers uh, or a Seahawks, but you know, we'll have to wait and see. Um, I think, like I said, I'm going to learn a lot about the Saints this week. I think this is going to be one of the bigger tests that they've had so far playing on the road in a cold weather stadium. And again, I think Michael Thomas will be a player to kind of keep an eye on in that game and kind of monitor what his his situation is like. Two more games that I wanted to ask you about. Both of them could be blowouts. Both of them could be close. I'm going to throw them out in a, in a package deal here, Koki, and I just want you to tell me which one of these games do you think is going to be more likely to end in a blowout, or do you think both of them are going to be close? I've got Seahawks and Niners in Seattle, and I've got Dolphins and Rams, a Dolphins team with a new quarterback that has looked okay at times, um, and a Rams team that I think is really on the up and up. We we called them a good team pretty confidently earlier. What are your uh, what are your, kind of your early thoughts on those two games? I think Seahawks Niners has a chance to be a blowout, even though I, I probably wouldn't bet on it. I can see a universe where Russell Wilson absolutely torches a really suspect Niners secondary, while on the other end Jimmy Garoppolo gets swallowed up by a defense that may not be that great, but knows all his and his team's tendencies. But on the other end, like, if you're the Rams, how do you defend Tua and know how to defend Tua? And plus, I mean, they're such a well-coached team in Miami. So I, 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 it's that's why I think that's probably going to be the closer game because I, I just love the way Miami's coached. And the Tua thing is going to be hard to defend against yeah. in a week one situation. In a week one situation for, for, for him, of course. No, I completely agree. I think Tua makes this team. I think Tua gets a dynamic to this team that we haven't really seen them have in the last couple of years. And I agree, their their coaching is competent, and you can tell the difference. Even though they haven't really, you know, it's not like they've completely overhauled the roster, but you know, they've got a couple of new pieces in there, and the coaching has been just really improved from what we've seen from teams of Dolphins past. And then again, I think Tua has an opportunity here to step up and kind of get into that conversation of these good young quarterbacks. Obviously, his story is so incredible, having to come back from the injury. You know, he was projected to be that big number one potential pick. 
Um, he, he suffered some issues uh, during his college days and now getting an opportunity at the big times in the NFL. And it is a little bit bittersweet because we do love you know, the veteran of Ryan Fitzpatrick and what he's brought to the league. But I think this is the right time. I think it is to a time in Miami. And I know a couple of Dolphins fans are very, very excited about that. Really quickly, before we move on from that, was, do you think it was the right time for them to bring him in? I think it's a, it was kind of a strange timing, but I, but I heard a good explanation for this in that rookies didn't really have a training camp or they had no preseason to preseason to really get their feet wet. So that was one of the reasonings as to why they wanted to go with a veteran like Fitzpatrick, just so they could groom and give to us some time to just sort of get comfortable with the NFL. But I don't know. I thought that was kind of an interesting explanation, which is why they kind of set him for an extra few weeks. I kind of like that. And I, and I, yeah, and I also wonder if they had had a training camp, whether he would have been the day one starter for their opening week. But, you know, that's all, all speculation. Uh, do you have any other thoughts that you want to add here before we uh, before you wrap it up for the night um, on just the, the NFL in general, any of these teams, any of these games coming up this week? Justin Herbert, he's elite. Elite? <laughs> I love Justin Herbert. I, I, I really, Justin Herbert has defied my expectations because, again, we watched him in college he just did not look as impressive as I think a lot of us expected him to be. But man, has he looked good in that Chargers uniform? I know. I mean, it's just—it's almost like the NFL is easier for him because in college it, it seemed like that he—he he was just a guy who just made these boneheaded plays, and you just couldn't really trust him in big moments because he was kind of volatile with the football. And now it's been the opposite of that. So really interesting. Absolutely. Well, Koki, thank you once again so much for stopping by the show. Always good to have you on. Thank you. This is, a, of course, I am now a friend of the show. <laughs> Absolutely. Keeping the friend of the show status. And want to say thank you to all of you tuning in at home once again. Your support is what makes this podcast possible. But that will be just about all the time we have for today. For Tyler Henry, Koki Riley, Ethan Jordan, and Alex Weiner, the whole Road to Glory crew coming in at separate times to talk some separate sports. We will have plenty more where this came from next week when we have another edition of the TBH Sports Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen. Thanks once again for tuning in, and we will see you next week.